love to have you take your Bibles as you settle back in, find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we will be in just a few moments. The study sheet in your bulletin, I know, will be of help to you as well in figuring out where we're at and where we're going, continuing our study in 1 Corinthians, of course, under the theme of facing the mess. And of course, our uh, artwork there on the front of the bulletin on the screens in front of you highlighting what we've called the redemptive power of the gospel, people in a mess, so much needing to hear from Christ. I know that that's where we're at today as well. We come to our time in Scripture that will take us down a certain path, and at the same time, uh, we all who, who come on a Sunday morning have all kinds of other things going on in our lives, and often what we come in with is not necessarily what's in front of us, but I am very confident that God uses His Word in all of us, whether or not that topic is on the same topic, same line as, as the struggle I face today, and I know God will care for us that way. Uh, some years ago now, I think I was, I think I was a early 20s or late teenager, I read, I read a, um, a science fiction book. It was my only dabbling in science fiction. I'm not a science fiction guy. But I discovered that C.S. Lewis, who I kind of like, wrote a science fiction trilogy, And so I decided to read it, and this is book three, an older version, Yellowed Edges, because it's been around a while. It was a single read book for me, meaning I read it, and I'll probably never read it again. But if you've read it, you'll uh, you'll know that somewhere along the way, uh, in this book, there is a shadowy figure introduced called The Head. He's the head of this organization, and people talk about him as the head, uh, whoever this person is. And he runs the place, and people talk about him in hallowed terms, and, but you never see him anywhere. And somewhere along the way, partway through the book, the, uh, the main character in the book manages to worm his way into this organization to where he's introduced finally to the head, which, as you discover in the book, is actually a head. No, really, it's a disembodied head. It was a guillotined head of a French scientist who they managed to keep alive with tubes and artificial stuff so it could still function as a head. It could think, it could speak, it could do what a head can do. It's just that there's no body involved. Creepy idea, right? I remember reading this, of course, in much younger days um, and and realizing, you know, uh, well, it would be, I mean, that's kind of interesting, weird, Very limited, the ability of a head to do anything, right? Because at the very moment that the head is barking out orders on how the organization is to be run, you could quickly stand across the room and say, yeah, why don't you come over here and say that? There's all kinds of things you could, (laughs) there are a lot of things you could do to, I mean, if you were a parent, could you imagine that? If you were stuck in a room and you couldn't leave the room and there you, just a head. Of course, I digress to talk about that really weird story to introduce us to the text today. (laughs) Oh, really? No, really. Uh, Because in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul uses the analogy of a body to teach about how the church is supposed to function as a unit and yet the individual members. And so I found myself thinking about the anomaly of a head with no body or a body with no head and how really that would be a problem, uh, plays into Paul's analogy about the importance of a body functioning as one and the importance of a body taking its directions from the head. 
Anytime that's not the case, that's some kind of a state of illness, of course, and we, we seek help for that. But I want to I pray for us. I want to pray that God would use his word and help us to think about the body of Christ, not only in its, in its uh, unified form, but also in the diversity elements, each one of us, each one of us, an important part of the body. So we're going to go there today, but I would like to, to ask God's help in that if you join me. Father, as we come to your word, it is with a profound awareness that we need your help, we really do, uh, to, to humble our hearts, to think about our own lives, and to hear your word. Father, we've come with a lot of different things that we might call baggage, but part of our lives, what it is, uh, things that are a concern to us, things that uh, have been a, a problem or a weight or a barrier. And uh, Father, we need you, we do. We need you to inform our lives, direct our lives to humble us, correct. Uh, these are all things that we ask of you. So use, your, use this time, I pray, use your word in us. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. On your study sheet, of course, you will see a few words about review. Looking back, a sermon or two of particular interest is the second little bullet point there where you see the definition of spiritual gifts that we introduced last week. Uh, that term, of course, familiar to some of you and less familiar to others of you, describing those abilities or ways in which God has, has wired us to be usable in the church and in the world. So that's a, a topic we'll continue today as we come to the text. There's a paragraph there, as always, describing the text that is in front of us, reminding us that 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14 are a unit. And uh, oh my goodness, what an important section. Next week we'll get to chapter 13, that part on love, and we'll, we'll see how come that fits. But I want to read our text today. I'll make a couple comments along the way. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31, a bigger section but I, I think it will, it will hold together well as a preaching unit. I'm going to make a couple comments along the way that I just want to look at because I'm not going to cover every single verse or phrase as we move along this morning. But look with me then at the Word of God. Paul says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So watch for the theme of one and many. Okay, look for that. It keeps showing up. For in one spirit, in one spirit, he says, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater mod modesty. 
uh, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the body, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now, he's going to ask a series of questions. They have an implied answer. It should be obvious, okay? Are all apostles... Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? What's the implied answer? No, of course not. If everyone was a teacher, there'd be no class. So the implied answer on all of those is no, not everyone is gifted in the same way. Uh, But he says, verse 31, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. And that's the segue into chapter 13, speaking about love. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, uh, Paul is talking about how the body of Christ is supposed to function, what a church is like. And I mentioned to you last week that there are several texts that if you were to do a more complete study on what the New Testament says on this topic, you would want to include. And I have listed some of them here, Romans 12, certainly Ephesians 4, the, the specific verses. And I mentioned last week, First Peter 4 would be a good inclusion as well. But I, I, for our purpose today, I want to go uh, aside to Colossians 1 for a moment, not because it's about spiritual gifts, but because it, it teaches on the same analogy of the church using the body analogy. So I want to go to Colossians for a moment he underscores something in this text that is in the First Corinthians text as well, but he does so a little more clearly, a little more detail. So Colossians chapter 1, I want to read verses 15 through 20. And, and notice with me the, the extra emphasis that is here on Christ as the head. We're the body, the members of the body, Christ is the head. Christ is the head of the body. And that's Uh, amplified here in Colossians 1. So he says, verse 15, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By the way, firstborn is a statement of position, not time. Often people say firstborn and they think, well, he's my oldest. That's not the way the term is typically used in the Bible. Firstborn was a position. It was a position of primacy. And hence the term is used here. Firstborn, that meant you were like the boss. Firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, authorities, all things were created by him and, what's it say? For him. It's for him. All of these things are for him. All that is created, for him. The church, for him. The members of the body, for him. Why are you breathing today? Thank you. Yes, for him. It's for him. It's for him. It's for him, for, for his purposes, for Christ's glory. It's for, for Christ. That's why you exist. It's why you're here. It's why you were created by God. It's for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. 
And he is, here it is, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent, first place. Love that term, preeminent. He might have first place. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace or having made peace by the blood of of his cross. This paragraph uses the same analogy of Christ as the head of the body. Different believers, you know, Jesus is your savior, you're part of the body. Christ is the head. Christ is the head. Christ is the head. Don't forget it. Coming back to 1 Corinthians 12 then, where this analogy is, is kind of teased out. As you noticed as I read, Paul does use sanctified humor here. He's not telling jokes, but he's, he's painting pictures in your mind uh, to cause you at least inwardly to smile to get the point. That's really what's going on here. We are the body. Christ is the head of the body. There are several things I'm going to underscore. The way you notice as I've laid out my, my thoughts today, I've, I'm, I'm pulling together three themes that we want to consider. I'm not touching on every verse or phrase. Three themes that I think we'll want to talk about. So the, the idea of Christ as the head of the body and we as individual members is, is what this, the main body of this is all about, the bulk of the text. Verses 14 to 20, there's a paragraph. 21 through 26, there's another paragraph. They come at the same, the same point from different angles, talking about the, 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 the way in which a body is, is interdependent. For a body to be whole, to, to be a, a good, physical, healthy body, it, it must function as a unit. That's, that's really what Paul is talking about. And I direct your attention to verse 13, first of all, which says, in, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And uh, some of your translations, depending on what you have in front of you, will say, by one spirit, um, there are a lot of studies done on that because the Hebrew or the Greek word can mean in, with, or by, depending on what's being spoken of. Uh, the, the broader part of the context and the latter phrase of the same verse would seem to be that in, in one spirit, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Probably a better way to do it. Not talking about water baptism. That's the point I want to make. Not talking about water baptism here. This is talking about the work of the Spirit of God by which every person who comes to Christ, every person who 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 before God realizes that they're a sinner, they've done wrong, and believes that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sin, rose from the dead, that Jesus, they're trusting Christ as their Savior. That's the point of this verse. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, whether you are Greek or Jew or slave or free, whatever your background, whatever your ethnicity, whether you're rich or poor, whatever your social status, economic abilities, whether you think of yourself as a greatly skilled person or not so much, whoever you are, If you know Christ, you have been placed into the body of Christ. You are a valuable member of the body of Christ. Okay, you get this? Every person who knows Jesus, a valuable member of the body of Christ. Okay? And then that's going to be played out through the rest of the text, reminding us there are no unimportant parts of the body. Just try removing it. Now, don't, don't start down the road of appendix and tonsils. Just don't do that. Stop it. You're going to ruin my point. Okay? But I'm thinking of things like, I don't know, your left arm or, you know, left side of your face or something is kind of important. And were it to be removed, the rest of the body would, 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 would notice. Um, you're part of the body, part of the body, part of the body. Uh, over and over again, as I read, hopefully you caught this. 
there are there, both the, the one and the many. The unity and the diversity of the body are both mentioned. It, it just keeps showing up. The body's one. The body's one. There's unity, but there's difference. There's differences between us. And it's really, really good that that's the case. God arranges the members of the body as he chooses. Every part needs the other part. Even, even as we'll see, weaker, even weaker parts um, are mentioned in verse 22. Even weaker parts. Again, I'm pulling themes together, not so much verse by verse. Weaker parts. And you think, well, boy, what do you think about that? I mean, weaker. You know, if I'm going to speak about arms, arms, I'm going to think about armpits. People think about their arms, but who thinks about armpits? But let me just, let me just say this to you. Try functioning without one. Without an armpit. I don't mean your arm. Even an armpit has a role. Now, you might say, well, who's the armpit in this body? Don't, don't, do not, do not start going down that path. Well, I know who that is. <laughs> no, no, stop. That's not the point. The, the point isn't who's who. The point is that every single part is needed. Every single part is to be valued. The, the putting together of a body, an amazing thing. In fact, I consider the human body a, a huge signpost that points to a creator. I really do. The human body is amazing. Um, you go to the doctor's office, you sit on the little bench, you're waiting for the doctor. You know they have those, those little pictures on the wall? Why do you think those are there? Right? Like the big picture of an ear. All these pictures have pieces and drawings, and here's this part. And here's, why are those there? Have you ever seen a doctor come in and go, just a minute? No, of course not. They're not there for the doctor. Uh, I think it's there for all of us as patients to go, boy, there must be wise. Or to learn something as we're sitting there. Picture, usually a picture of an eye or a picture of an ear or something like that. Other structures and things. You kind of look around and go, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. But it's, it's amazing, the work of God. You know, the psalm writer was correct in Psalm 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Uh, that's a very wise statement to look at a body and be amazed, see? And so it is with the body of Christ, to look at the body of Christ and be amazed and to see there the handiwork of a creator. Uh, we're wise to do that as well. I think that's the point of the text. Now, as I read, I'm sure you caught the, the, the humor. Paul's in, tr- trying to be a little funny, not like telling jokes, but he's, he's being humorous. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And I know you can just picture, you know, the van pulling up and dropping you off because you couldn't walk. You have no legs. It's just a large eye. It would be rolled into the worship area, and there's Bob, you know. Eye, ear. No, of course. And that's, that's Paul's point. It's a good thing that we're not all alike. It's a good thing we're not just an eye. It's a good thing we're not just an ear. Every single part needing the other in order to to work well. Now, my next section here just underscores this unity and diversity. Unity and diversity are essential, and and they are vulnerable as well, easily mishandled, undermined, or despised. Unity and diversity, essential. I put here a healthy physical body must function as a unit without jealousy, without compromise, without, without delay. What do I mean delay? Well, let me just use a familiar example to some of us. Um, remember growing up, uh, the home in which I was raised, in order to get to the bus stop, you walked up the driveway and then down the road, you know, from the house, you could not see the bus stop. It was a ways. 
So you're down this country road, there are no sidewalks, no ditches, it's just this one lane road that's pretty narrow, and if two cars tried to pass, you kind of hold your breath, shut your eyes, and hit the gas. You know what I'm talking about? Hope you don't hear a scraping noise, those kinds of roads. So we walk down that road to go to the bus stop, my sisters and I, each morning. And of course, as you, as you go, what does your mother call after you? Go ahead, moms. Come on, what do you think? I mean, come on, sorry. Be careful. Don't play on the road. Don't walk. Because, you know, you're a kid. There's nobody on the road to mom. You might walk down the middle of said road. There's no line. There are no lines. You just might walk down the middle of the country road. But no, you hear the voice of your mother behind you reminding you to get out of the road. Because every now and then you'd, you'd, you'd hear a car or a truck. I mean, now, body functioning as a unit. That's what I'm after without delay. What happens if you hear or see a car coming? And the rest of your body protests and doesn't move. Right? The legs go on strike. Yeah, not so. I don't see a car. Your legs say, to use Paul's same point of analogy. No, th- for the body to survive, all the, fun- all the body parts must honor the others and kind of function as a unit. I mean, this is, this is elementary school, isn't it? But Paul's being very, very basic to say, this is the way the church body is supposed to function too. Not just your physical body. It's the way a church is supposed to function. So it is with the body of Christ is the idea. Body uh, members have different functions. They work in different ways, do different. They've all got to function together. And there's a common purpose. John 17 underscores this. And I pull in another text because I think it underscores purpose a little more clearly. The body surviving and doing well and doing the things the body is supposed to do. Yes, here in this text, John 17 is that high priestly prayer of Christ as he's on his way to the cross. John 17, he prays. He prays for the, his followers who are yet to come. And in verses 21 and 23, he repeats a phrase. Sometimes when things are repeated, you catch the emphasis. And so it is in John 17. In those two verses, he prays about the functional unity of the of his followers, right? And his, the phrase is, that the world may believe that you sent me. Francis Schaeffer, of course, in writing in the 70s, I think it was, Church at the End of the 20th Century, I, I think is the right book, he, he tees off on this and talks about the functional unity in the body of Christ and how devastating it is when there is a division in a body, church, when there's division and how often that's an opportunity for people on the outside to look and to say, so, what is it you guys believe? Behold how they love one another. Yeah, they do. They're fighting like cats and dogs. And so there, he's underscoring, of course, Francis Schaeffer did. And then, of course, Paul here and Jesus in John 17 came at the same thing. That, that they may be one, even as Jesus prayed, even as you, Father, and me, and I, and you. That they may be one, that the world would believe that you sent me. So in other words, one of the key evidences to a watching world that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world should be the unity within the body of Christ, the way we treat each other, even when we irritate each other, okay? Being together, unity, still. Now, in the church, I suggest here, we must value and protect the unity that's ours. Unity can be disrupted, despised, and it can be broken. And I think all of us who've been around churches long enough uh, can, can remember times when there was disruption to unity or broken unity, and how devastating that is, often over something very, very small that turns into something bigger. Well, these things should be guarded, guarded, guarded. Now, uh, next page. Biblical diversity. Now, 
I'm going to take a minute on this. Biblical diversity means differing functions, differing passions, differing specialties, and differing perspectives. And I, and I want to take a minute on this because I think this is a really significant thing for a church's self-understanding. I, I gave four different ways of saying a similar thing. Just basically, we're different. We're different from one another. One of the dangers, that, things that happen in the body of Christ, is sometimes people begin to think that others, I don't think it obvious, it, it, it's kind of subtle. But you find yourself functioning this way. I wish other people loved Jesus like I do. The way I love Jesus is the right way to love Jesus. And if everybody else would just do things the way I do, it'd be such a happy place. Okay? You might not know that you're thinking that way, but you, you start to do that. Um, this is the way I love Jesus. This is the way I specialize. This is, these are my passions. I do not know what's wrong with all these other people around here. They have different passions. They don't love what I love. What is wrong with them? Okay, Gary Thomas... All right, this cool little book, Sacred Pathways, I'm going to bless you by reading his table of contents. No, really, I will. And make just a couple of comments. This book is all about uh, describing nine different ways in which people love God, using love as a verb here, okay? The way people love God. Nine pathways he lists. This is not about spiritual gifts specifically. You might put this into personality profiles. It, it, is, it doesn't matter to me. But I think it's an amplification of this text as it describes differences in the body of Christ. All right? So I'm just going to kind of remind you of what these would be. Thomas lists nine sacred pathways. Uh, first, he mentions naturalists. Loving God out of doors. Now, if this is you, you're probably not here. You're listening out. Uh, you're, on a, you're sitting on a chair someplace in the woods, sitting on a beach, loving God outside, because uh, that's what you would say. I meet God out here. I don't need all that other stuff. Of course, that would, I, I would say, where's the rest of the body? If you indeed are just sitting outside, I'd say, well, where's everybody else? Because you're members of a body. So when do you hang out with the left, the left arm, the right arm, and the other, the other parts of the body? Naturalists love God out of doors. They're the ones who are saying, man, I feel, this is when I feel closest to God is when I'm in nature. Um, Wonderful. Sensates would be his number two. Senses. Loving God with the senses. Some of you are wired by God to be very sense-oriented, meaning if we were on a Sunday morning to light incense up here, you'd be thrilled. He's like, oh my goodness sake, my senses just come alive. We're going to uh, diffuse. Right? How are we doing? Now we're, now we're getting somewhere. We're going to diffuse. Some of you would be going, oh, I, this is great. Others of you would be saying, what in the world is that? Get the fire extinguisher. Something's on fire around here. Because you're not wired that way. Sensates are they love God with the senses. Touch, smell, ambiance is really important to you. Okay? Some of us are very practical. You say, we don't need all that. I mean, just paint the walls and put up some chairs. We're fine. Sensates, not going to happen. They want to feel things. Uh, Third, traditionalists love God through ritual and symbol. Often these folks go to uh, more formalized church settings. They love ritual. They like tradition. Um, If you sung that song 500 times, they see nothing wrong with singing it 501. Okay? They are not the ones saying, boy, we keep singing the same thing. They're going, yes, we're singing the same thing. Uh, Traditionalists. Uh, I like it that way. It's familiar. It's symbolic. It's Anyway, traditionalists, you know who you are. Fourth, he would list ascetics, ascet- like asceticism, loving God in solitude and simplicity. You people love retreats, right? You love getting away. You, you would, you know, if I announced we were going to do a silent retreat, you'd sign up. We get to go spend 48 hours and just be silent. <gasps> Wonderful. Some of you would go. Others of you wouldn't last five minutes. 
Simplicity, solitude, some of the spiritual disciplines, the ascetics of old, pole sitters, living out in the, the desert. That was a, he would call a pathway to, or one way to love God. Activists would be another. Loving God through con- confrontation. I don't mean like yelling at people necessarily, though sometimes they do. Activists would be people who love to collect signatures for things. You want to go down to City Hall. You want to protest that business who lets whatever it is happen. Their money, you know where their money goes? Good night, man. They support all kinds of bad causes. I think we should boycott. Boycotters are probably this. Okay? Others of you go, eh, it's all the same. They're all a mess. Eat up. Okay. Uh, you're, not, you're not one of these. An activist, loving God through confrontation, fixing the world. Uh, next would be caregivers, loving God by loving others. You bring people Kleenex. Even without being asked, you sign up and take them soup. You do. You show up on their door. I heard you were hurting. Here's some chicken noodle soup. That's a caregiver. It's wonderful. It's a nice gift. Thank you for that. Somebody must do this, but you're good at it. How can I help you? And uh, you're just, you just do practical things, and you feel good about it because that's how God wired you. You just love it. I mean, why doesn't everybody do this? Uh, caregivers, they're wonderful. Uh, next would be enthusiasts, he lists. Loving God with mystery and celebration. So, um, my goodness, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of charisma in that sense. Maybe you would be love to go to a cathedral where the ceiling is, I don't know, like 15 stories up, where you go, <gasps> and you would stand there and you would feel the mystery. Others would be saying, okay, so, lunch. Uh, but this person would be saying, well, let me just have some time. It's got to be here in the mystery. Wonderful. You're, in, you're, you're that. Number, uh, number eight, contemplatives. Loving God through adoration. You just want to sing worship songs forever, right? If you just could have three-hour worship times, you'd be thinking, man, we're just warming up. You want to sit at the feet of Jesus. You're one of those uh, people wired like that. It's like, keep playing the music. Turn it up a little bit louder. And, and all these other things. We don't need all that other stuff. Just kind of... Stay right here, contemplatives. And then finally, his ninth would be intellectuals, loving God with the mind. Okay? They love to study. They love to take notes on things. They can go for hours reading. But you give them, I can speak to this, uh, give them a stack of books and a full cup of a pot of coffee, and it's like, yes. Oh, my goodness sakes. This is where it's at. Why isn't everybody like this? These here people are out getting signatures on stuff. It's like, you haven't read the right books. Okay, well, as I describe those, you probably heard one or more that are kind of you. Did you find some? Now, I, I digress on this, take the time, because 1 Corinthians 12 is about differences in the body, and one of the things that often happens in churches is that people divide over these. Whole churches polarize in these nine areas. Okay, Here's what, and, and to the detriment of the church, this is one of my basic, basic beliefs about how one of the, what's wrong with churches today. This is one of them, is that churches polarize. They specialize in some of these areas. Instead of an and, like we often say is one of our core values, and, we try to do and here as well. Meaning, a church that is only about intellectual, right? You, you're you're going to have somebody walk in who's more of an emotionally-based person. They're going to walk in and go, nope. Nobody here like me, they're going to go down the road to the whatever church that's a little more emotionally based, okay? All the people who love God with their mind are going to stay here at John MacArthur's church, not picking on him, okay? I'm just identifying. And then all the emotional ones are going to go down here, and all the activists who love to feed the hungry and care for the homeless and do things in the community, they're going to go over here. And listen, the church is weaker for this. 
Because some of those people who are all smart and study a lot, some of them should be in other churches too. And some of those activist types should be over here prodding the intellectuals to get out of the chairs and go do something in the world, right? And some of the emotional people need to tell some other people, could you guys feel anything? Come on, somebody say amen. And those emotional people, if they all stay together and nobody thinks, that church is all emotion and no brain. It's a problem, okay? And, but some of those people need to flavor some of the other churches. But you know what? Here's, because of conflict, we want to avoid conflict. So we only want to hang out with people just like us. And the church is weaker because of it. You see where I'm going with this? It's a little messier if you have different groups hanging out with each other because they irritate each other. They do. The intellectuals are going, would you stop that? My goodness sakes, I'm trying to hear the next point in the outline. And somebody over here, I just want to stop and be with Jesus. And you're going, good night, you people. These, these, all, these emphases should work together in a church. Granted, they irritate each other because the church will be better for it. You see where I'm going with this? Not so much about spiritual gifts. It's how God has wired us, even emotionally, differently. I think it's a good thing. Now, I'm shifting to the next topic. More to be said on that, I'm sure. Getting specific about gifts. I want to comment on a couple of these things. I'm going to skip over a couple to make sure that I have time to, to get to really riling everybody up. Getting specific about gifts. Uh, as we are going to notice in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, in the church at Corinth, there are problems to be addressed. We have already seen that. This book is a corrective book. Uh, Pastor Tyler called it an occasional book, meaning there's a specific occasion. Paul is addressing some things. One of the things going on in the church at Corinth, again, it's more highlighted in chapter 14, is a misuse of the gift of tongues. Okay? More on that in a minute. But there's a misuse. And so part of, the, of what is written in this book is to correct abuse. Sometimes people say, well, this is just about defining the normal. That's really not true. That's to misread the whole book. It's, it's correcting places where there are problems. And so it is in this book, correcting on, on your study sheet. Some gifts are more noticed than others. They're more noticed. And in this context, that would be the gift of tongues, a source of division in the church. Paul is addressing that, urging restraint, defining some boundaries, refocusing on some other gifts, saying, okay, you guys are all excited about one area. You kind of need to stop that and start thinking about some other areas. And he gives a list. And I suggest some prioritizing going on. Instead of over here, you need to be focusing over here. Now, uh, as I step toward this, this next area, I mentioned first, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul mentions the signs of an apostle. He says, the signs of an apostle were evident among you in signs and wonders and special activities. Uh, he, he lists a number of things, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of an apostle. This text mentions apostles as it does in Ephesians chapter 4. You've heard me say, if you've been around here a while, that I believe in the New Testament, the word apostle is used in two ways. Okay? I believe there were capital A apostles, meaning the original 12, and that that group, uh, well, died. Okay? First century people, apostles. I think that's 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The gifts of an apostle were done among you. I think that means capital A apostle, uh, that specific group of 12, requirement of which uh, to be a part of, you'd seen the resurrected Christ. Some texts there for you to reference. Now, the signs of an apostle then were those that belonged specifically to apostles. 
And uh, small a apostle, of course, sent ones in general, probably a missionary gift, I think. If you've read our church doctrinal statement, you probably have seen the term cessation or cessationist, or you've heard it in other settings, sometimes used in a very bad way. And I am a, I am a gentle, smiling cessationist. I'm not an angry one. I don't hunt people down who disagree with me. I'm a very nice man. But nonetheless, I want to define what is used by this term, uh, what is meant by this term, and it may, uh, sometimes it's used pejoratively, um, sometimes it's ill-defined, wrongly, that is, and so to clarify what what is meant by this. Cessationism is is a topic. The idea is this. A cessationist believes in some form that there were certain gifts defined in the New Testament, used in New Testament times, that seemed to be less used or not used later on. Some would say it more strongly that all those sign gifts ceased at a certain time. And there's, oh my goodness, are there books written about this on both sides of it. But a a cessationist of some sort believes that there were gifts that used at a specific time that in the very least were less used later on. Okay? There are various ways to say that. That's one. I'm, I'm just using, I'm painting with a very wide brush. By, 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 Saying cessationism, this is not to say, I'm giving you some things here, this is not to say that God is limited. I've had all these things leveled at me um, or at the church. We're not saying that God is limited or that the Holy Spirit is less active today than in any other era. Nobody calls the church to say, do you believe in the gift of teaching? Nobody does that. Never once, all my years. No one's ever called to say, do you believe in the gift of mercy? Nobody calls. Nobody cares about that. People that call on the phone will say, do you believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Or do you believe in the work of the Holy Spirit? Or do you believe in tongues? That's what they're after. They don't care about all the other gifts. Only about that one is the one people call and then uh, sometimes hang up in mid-sentence when you begin to answer. No, really, is what happens. Um, to, To say that I am a cessationist is not to believe, no matter what people say. You believe the Holy Spirit is less active? Oh, please don't say that about me. I don't believe that for a second. The Holy Spirit is less active. No, 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 no. I think we referenced last week in John 16. When the Holy Spirit is most at work, what happens? Christ is honored. Christ is honored. That, that's what the Holy Spirit came to do, is to point people to Christ. And as you'll see at the, the, the latter line in the next little paragraph, the chief evidence in the New Testament of the work of the Spirit of God isn't certain gifts. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, for goodness sakes. I mean, at least let's get the, some of the... We can disagree on certain areas, but at least let's get the, the Scripture right. Right? The chief evidence of the work of the Spirit of God is the fruit of the Spirit. Read Galatians 5. That's how you know that the Spirit of God is most at work when somebody is patient, gentle, and kind, and loving, and forbearing, and the whole list. Man, that's really good stuff. Uh, Being a cessationist does not mean that God does not stir emotion or give experiences. Of course not. It's simply saying, it looks to me like there were certain gifts that were used a lot in New Testament times that were at least used less as time went on. Now, that doesn't leave out the idea that God could not do something again. That's another topic. But I want to defend, explain that position just a bit. Uh, One writer says this, by cessation or cessationism, uh, we are not ruling out occasional examples of the miraculous. God can do what God wants to do, any time and place. 
I think we all agree on that. To say sign gifts have ceased means that God does not give to people the ability to perform signs as a continuous and normal part of life. That's Stephen Waterhouse um, in his book, Not by Bread Alone. I, I would agree with that, both sides of that. That is normal and continuous. It is not to say, a cessationist does not believe that God just can't do certain things anymore. I don't know any cessation. Well, there are probably some out there. I'm not among them. God can do what he will. Anytime. Um, I mentioned last week this book by D.A. Carson called Showing the Spirit. This is a full pot of coffee book, if you know what I mean. Uh, it's, the whole book is on chapters 12, 13, 14 of 1 Corinthians. It's a full pot of coffee because you're going to need to have your sleeves rolled up. Do not read it as you're trying to drift off to sleep. That would be every paragraph. Uh, it's hard work. But along the way, in chapter 5, as he's dealing with um, contemporary issues. Now, see, this book, I should tell you, it will irritate hardline, angry cessationists. I'm not, that's not me. It will also irritate people in the charismatic Pentecostal camp. Okay? So he irritates people equally. That's fine. <laughs> but I, I want to quote a couple of things. He tries to be just blunt level honest on a lot of areas. So he's just going to say stuff. I appreciate it. He says this, uh, reflections on history, cessationism. He says, there is considerable historiography that argues that the phenomenon of tongues and other charismatic, he uses quotes, charismatic gifts died out fairly early in the history of the church. In other words, he's saying there is actually historical evidence of this. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to just defend your position. There's a lot of history. I'll read you some. He says, next page, it appears as if tongues were extremely rare after the beginning of the second century. How do you know? Because these people lived back then, they wrote books. Augustine. Let me just read. Let me just read history. Augustine. Mid, he was born in the mid-300s. Um, died in the uh, 430. He says this. Uh, and I, you understand language is a little bit more archaic, because he lived a couple years ago. He says, in the earliest times, the Holy Spirit fell upon them that believed, and they spoke with tongues that they had not learned, as the Spirit gave them ability. Those were signs adapted to that time. For there behooved to be that betokening of the Holy Spirit in all languages, to show that the gospel of God had run through all the languages of the earth. This thing was done as a betokening, that is a sign, and it passed away. That was in the 300s. I didn't make that up. Just, just read it. Another guy, now similar time frame, latter part of the 300s, he says this whole topic is very obscure. The obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation. Again, talking about sign gifts and so on. Being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. And then he begins to offer conjecture on why that would be so. So down through the years, there are many other writers from that time period reflecting on some of those gifts and saying, huh, who knew? They're not functioning that way now, at least in the same way. Very, very rare. Interesting. Uh, during the 1700s, John Wesley offered a couple words of caution. Again, this is all prior, I'm saying, to the, what you'd call the modern charismatic movement. John Wesley says, I dislike anything that has the appearance of enthusiasm. Now, he doesn't just mean go get him, tiger. That's not what he means. He's talking about over-the-top, um, over-emotionalism. That's a, a dated term, okay? Enthusiasm. It's, it's talking about emotionalism. That is, overvaluing feelings and inward impressions, and you'd think he's writing this today. Mistaking the mere work of imagination for the voice of the Spirit of God. 
expecting the end without the means, undervaluing reason, knowledge, and wisdom in general. This, this idea, of, he says, imagining, no, mistaking the work of the imagination for the voice of the Spirit. It seems very apropos today. Everybody says, uh, it seems. You know, the Spirit told me, God told me, God told me, God told me. I'm not overstating the case, so don't hear me overstate, okay? Don't hear me pick on what I'm not picking on. I'm agreeing with John Wesley. He was cautioning the church 300 years ago that it's possible to mistake the work of imagination for the voice of the Spirit. Be very careful about what you say, well, the Spirit told me. John Wesley would say, amen, as would Charles Spurgeon, and I could give you a whole list of others who would say, be very, very careful about what you ascribe to God. Because it may not be God at all. It could be the voice of your spirit speaking to you. Be very careful about what you said God told me. Very cautious. And I am not alone in issuing that caution. Uh, interestingly, um, oh my goodness sakes. Yeah, Charles Spurgeon said this in the late 1800s. We are only at the beginning of an era of mingled belief, unbelief, mingled unbelief and fanaticism. Half the people of God hardly know their head from their heels at this time, undervaluing the scripture. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Um, I, wanna, I, want, I know that I've, I've roused up a number of things, and I did first hour and second hour too. Lord love everybody. Um, I want to close like this. The point of this section is not intended to be controversial. That it is, is due to things going on in our own day. This text was never intended to be really uh, to stir people up. It was intended to say, Christ is the head of the church. The body has many members, and every part is important. That's what this text is about. We just like to, we've got to find some of the other elements. Every part of the body is important. However God has wired you and gifted you, whatever passions he's placed within you that are to be used for the kingdom of God, use them. And if you don't, the church is, is, is missing something. It's missing what you bring to the table, see? Uh, Whether you do something that's noticed or whether you do something that's not noticed, something behind the scenes, whatever that is, if you don't do what God has equipped and wired you to do, the church is missing something because you're not doing it. And for a church to function, it takes all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. Uh, I mentioned last week the, the idea of willingness. You guys responded by willingly signing up to cut the grass. There are only two slots left. Isn't that amazing? For the whole summer. The grass is going to look great. Fantastic. Thank you. That wasn't about giftedness. It's about willingness. You remember. But all of this is, is so that Christ, Christ is the head of the body, will indeed be seen as having first place. That's the idea. At the end of it all, people won't say Sunset Bible Church really has it together. Uh, I'd rather have them say Christ is a great Savior. That's greater praise. Christ is a great Savior. What a Lord is ours. Look at him. I'd like to have you stand with me. Let's close together in prayer. Thank you for listening to all this and being gentle with me in the parking lot. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. Oh, we, we, we work at understanding. We work at applying it to ourselves today. We do. Father, give us clarity in how that is to be. Thank you so much for these dear people. You know the week ahead of us, each of us will have things we we don't know are coming, but they are. Thank you that you walk ahead of us, clearing the way. Father, be honored in our lives this week. Care for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.